0: This interview was recorded on February 19th, 2021. Hi, I'm Len Epp from LeanPub, and in this episode of the Front Matter podcast, I'll be interviewing Stephen Godfrey. Based in Linden, Utah, Stephen is a senior DevOps engineer at Omadi, a Utah-based startup that works on technology supporting the tow service industry. You can check out his courses on freelance consulting at FreelanceCollege.com and see his web design and development work at MountainFreshMedia.com. Stephen is the author of the LeanPub book, Imposter Therapy, How to Overcome Imposter Syndrome and Start Living. In the book, Using Stories from His Own and Other People's Lives, Stephen teaches readers how they can try to overcome imposter syndrome, which can be defined a number of different ways, but can be described as the surprisingly common feeling that you're regarded as a person with qualities or accomplishments you don't believe you actually possess. In this interview, we're going to talk about Stephen's background and career, professional interests, his book, and at the end, we'll talk a little bit about his experience using Pub to self-publish. So, Thank you, Stephen, very much for being on the Front Matter podcast. Thank you, Len. I'm glad to be here. I always like to start these interviews by asking people for their origin story. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about where you grew up and the circuitous path you took to a career in web development and DevOps.
1: Well, how long do we want to go on this podcast? Uh, As for origin stories, I don't have anything amazing like joining the Avengers or whatnot, but my origin story is pretty pretty interesting. I grew up in Canada in Sherwood Park, Alberta, Canada, which is just east of Edmonton. So picture this, it's winter, it's 5.30 in the morning, delivering newspapers. It's so cold that your eyelids free shot. You have to wear two pairs of socks, leather parka, everything. And that's how I grew up. I grew up in Edmonton where the summers are sunny, but not warm. And the winters are cold as cold can be. Not as cold as you know Alaska, but it's still pretty cold. And then ask for origin story, grew up like a normal kid, and then did a two-year stint, a service stint, as a missionary over in Australia, which was awesome. Got to ride the you know, go through Alice Springs. I lived down in South Australia, also lived in North Australia. So that whole gamut from South to North and then came back and yeah, did school, um, went down to a college in Salt Lake city. So I'm from Canada, Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, but got a chance to go down to the States. And I wanted to go to BYU just because they had a good program in information systems and just because it's where I felt I should go. So it was kind of a certiculous route. Um, I think of our, our listeners, not everyone here has finished college or they started and they didn't finish or they took longer than they wanted. And that's the thing in imposter syndrome or even just life. I think we set this, this unlofty expectation, this goal that we should hit this goal by a certain date. You should be married by this date. You should have gotten this salary by this date. You should have finished by this date. And I didn't. I was 27 when I finished my bachelor's degree in information systems and the certain Ticuous route was basically, I had a a really bad relationship experience where uh, it just knocked me to my knees partway through BYU. And so I was starting to fail classes. I mean, I took calculus three times and, and finally trying to figure out life. And so I took a, a break to go back to Northern Canada. So picture this, if I'm from Northern Canada and you know, Alberta, and then I go to a place called Fort Murray, which is about four and a half hours north. So it's even colder, even darker in the winter, but I tracked, uh, I was a trucker for a while, did garbage truck, freight truck, uh, hauling things, seeing the Northern lights up there was just phenomenal. One night was a hotshot trip up to the, the plant sites. And I saw the whole sky from a good at least 180 degrees of my vision. I could just see from left to right this the skies danced and the gods battled. And it was just poetic and beautiful. And I had to stop my truck because I would have crashed it because it was just so impressive. But yeah, lived up there for a while, did some trucking, got to go back to BYU. My goal was I wasn't gonna date. I wasn't gonna get married. Yeah, and then I got married, which I'm grateful for, but um it was it was good it's good it's been a good marriage we've been married 12 years now and we're still happily married we have two kids uh eliana and finn uh, nine and seven and we live in linden utah i've got a house uh we've got a cat which is nice that was a new addition to the family last last year and it just showed up on our property so we took it in so for origin story and that's kind of like my my upbringing growth that kind of thing in a nutshell but Work-wise, I, you know, took a break from BYU after I graduated and then I was just, I was so burnt out from school. I was just done. I was just, I was just tired and worn out. And so I took a job during the Great Recession and it was the, this is kind of interesting because you, you know, we want to talk about the pandemic and COVID-19 and how i took a you know had to get any job i could during the great recession in 2009 so i was doing upper level tech support for a company fresh out of college and then got a chance to go work for a company doing web development and reporting and analytics that kind of thing processing handling the reports i process payroll for a whole bunch of teachers and so i did that for Oh, I, I know a good what, year, year or so. And then there were some company politics. Half the company got let go, at least the Provo end of that. And that was during my master's program. And I was going to, back to BYU to get the master's degree. And so I worked for a startup. They ran out of money they everyone got fired (laughs) i started looking for work and then the interesting thing is that i i just it wasn't it's not what i wanted to do and somebody called me up and said i have got this project i want it scoped can you scope it out I'm like yeah i can scope it out and so i've done contract work before but never really freelancing and so that was my first real freelance gig and I scoped it out. I got a check in hand. I thought, Well, fetch! I've got a. <laughs> I really have to deliver because I'm I'm paid for this. So I did scoped it out, and I did work for that client for a year and a half. And then I gained more clients and more clients. I, I did that was for a self-storage company. And then I got a client doing work for a bank and then for a financial tech institution, then for management consultant, then accountants, optometrists, a whole bunch of things, building websites, which you can see on mountainfreshmedia.com. But uh, I just did freelancing for a good five solid years and did pretty well, really successful. We're talking six figures uh, towards the end. And then... Dun 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 dun. COVID nineteen hit, and I'll be honest that I had a, a string of just unaccepted, you know, projects or contracts or things like that. I didn't have the the systems I do now, or at least the the knowledge of how to get leads and sales I do now. In fact, I'm writing a book on how to find freelance clients. It's just very infancy, but that's my next project on the on the docket. And so yeah, I was running out of cash. I had this huge runway of fifty thousand dollars saved up from my freelancing, and I was starting to burn through that. I'm like. I need to get a job so i got a job doing devops and i've always wanted to get into devops just to know could i do it and i've been working there for oh gee good eight months now and i'm a senior devops engineer at imani and i could do it which is kind of cool because I have definitely suffered with imposter syndrome and wondering like, am I good enough? Do I belong? Do I deserve here? And it's been, it's been really good to have that achievement and know like, yeah, I, I can to the line. I can, I can fix things. I can handle it when the fire is going on and make things work. And so, yeah, in the meantime, I freelance on the side. I've got a project I'm delivering this Monday. That's seven, 7K, so seven K, so 7,000 us and life is good. Full-time job, stable marriage. Kids, you know, kids are kids, right? But they're pretty good.
0: And then life is good. No complaints. Yeah. Thanks very much for sharing all that. Um, uh, we were chatting a little bit before the interview, and um, I mentioned to Stephen that I'm from next door originally uh, to Alberta in Saskatchewan. Yeah, and Saskatchewan. Yeah. So I've I've had my own, yeah, yeah yeah I've I've had I've had my own uh, version of many of the experiences you described of you know seeing the northern lights, seeing this the whole sky because you know the joke is that the land is so flat that. If your dog runs away, You'll still see where it is after three days. Um, mm-hmm. Yep. Particularly the nighttime sky uh, is an amazing thing in in the remote north. I stay remote in the north, and yes, the winters. I when I lived in in the UK for a few years, and I'm sure you probably had a version of this in a, in Australia. But you know, telling people that like where I grew up in winter, it was a normal thing for the weather report on the radio to say how long it's going to take for your skin to freeze. <laughs> uh, that like you know when we where we grew up, that's just like part of the part yep. of the weather report. Yep. But <laughs> in other places, it sounds. Totally horrifying.
1: Um, well, it's funny when we say north. I mean, if you—it's all relative, right? If you talk to somebody who's from Minnesota, kind of Minnesota would be on the same level as, you know, Saskatoon or whatnot, Regina, Edmonton, that kind of level. But then you talk to somebody who's a Canadian. It's like, well, you know, are you from Tuktoyaktuk or Inuvik or Northwest? Yeah, well, not Northwest Territories anymore. But um, the Yukon—they think that's far north. But if you talk to somebody from Texas and say you're from Edmonton or you're from, you know, Winnipeg or something. And they think that's far north. And so it's interesting that you and I both canoed up in northern Saskatchewan, the land of a thousand lakes, they call it. And it's just gorgeous, gorgeous area where you're in the middle of nowhere from, like literally middle of nowhere. And yeah, did a 10 day trip up there, same place where you canoed. So that's kind of
0: an interesting coincidence. Yeah, actually it's funny that this is a total coincidence, but when I was actually on a three or four day canoe trip up there with the high school I was at, we ran into another group of teenagers canoeing who were from my old high school. Like they were my class. <laughs> up,
1: uh, there, up, up there, up
0: yeah, places. yeah. It's Yeah, it's, it's strange. <laughs> but,
1: uh, that's like saying that you went to Antarctica with a bunch of your friends and you ran into your old high school friends down like that's just
0: totally random. Yeah, it was wild. Yeah. <laughs> but these kinds of coincidences uh, do do happen sometimes. Um, and yeah, it's a beautiful country if you ever get a chance to go there. And if you're willing to brave the winter, it actually is. It's bracing at first, but if you dress well and you ask for some advice, uh, you might even enjoy it after a while. Um, yeah. I wanted to ask you, so um, you said you were in Australia for two years on a mission. Um, I'm assuming given the university you went to that this was probably a Mormon mission. Yeah, um, guilty. I, and, we don't really use the term Mormon any, yeah, sorry, anymore, yes. but uh, yeah, well, no, it's would, fine. Would you say
1: LDS. Or yeah, LDS is fine. Yeah, it's yeah, not okay, offensive. So. It just, yeah. Yeah, right. so. I was the guy with the, the, I mean, I don't know if some reader is going to be some like hate thing. Like, I'm just going to turn this off right now. Click. Oh my gosh. But I mean, I've got some stories to tell. So, but yeah, I did a service mission as a missionary, uh, for the church, of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints over in Australia. And it was good. A lot of service work, a lot of serving in libraries and meals on wheels and helping poor people and teaching and uh, working with the Aborigines. It was just a really fantastic experience because, well, there's a couple of things. One, um, in Adelaide where we were it was the hottest summer in a hundred years I think there was 30 days straight where it was 40 degrees plus uh, celsius of course so that'd be 110 degrees fahrenheit plus ish and it was hot and there's a story where oh this is funny so we're up in um in darwin in northern territory and we're going to go for a crocodile tour and they have it where they they take these big hunk of of meat and they tie it to a string and they tie that to a rope and that's tied to a stick and so they they will drip that in the water and the crocodiles will come out just like peter pan like do 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 and you see them just come out and they will leap literally leap out of their water you know we're talking eight ten feet up in the air sometimes they'll can clear the water because they have that huge tail and they can actually grab the meat rip it off the line and chew it and so but yeah they were, were waiting for a croc uh, croc tour and there was a guy who says hey see that green tree snake you should grab it and i was scared and so like i i kind of half-hesitantly reached for the middle of the snake and you know slowly and it turned and it bit me and i looked at my hand. And, and there was just these white scratches on it. it. didn't even break the skin really. And so like, oh, I can't do this. So I grabbed the snake, pulled it down, you know, put my hand behind its head so it can try and bite me. And it was kind of cool to have that confidence where I used to always be scared of snakes as a kid. And like, no, I, I can do it. I can catch snakes. Now I catch snakes all the time. But that was funny because when I let the snake go, there was a bunch of girls around and let it on the ground and it went right towards them and they freaked out and shrieked and jumped on the chair, just like out of a movie kind of thing. And it was a good memory. So a lot of good experience over in Australia
0: great people loved it and uh it was good good experience yeah re- regarding people turning off the, the podcast <laughs> um uh, I've actually <laughs> interviewed at least one or two people who've who've gone on Mormon missions at or, sorry LDS missions mm-hmm. and talked about it before uh you in fact one person I interviewed actually worked on the development of the system for like candidate selection and assignment uh-huh. um so <laughs> this is this subject has come up before um specifically in the context of of uh the concept of imposter syndrome I wanted to ask you so I mean I've often wondered this when I've seen, you know, people on their mission, you know, and encountered them. Um, and I hope that's the right term to use, but, um, did you how did you feel when you you know as it were knocked on your first door
1: i think it's the same as if you have any like first day in the job first date with a girl i'm well, not I guess not with first date with a girl but first day in a job first day doing anything in position where you're unfamiliar you're scared as 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 heck like you're totally scared as can be and it's unfamiliar and you think you're not good enough and what am i doing here like all those questions go through every person every missionary's mind ever and they went through my mind for sure like what am I doing here is this right am I crazy um, what's my purpose is this what I want to do with my life am I good enough am I clean enough am I worthy enough am I is this all those questions go through your mind and I think with life we just you knock on the door uh, metaphorically and literally speaking but you just do knock on the door and you just, you just take it and you take each moment at a time um, in 12-step. And I've done that, I'm, you know, I go to a 12-step group just for maintenance and whatnot and accountability. It's been really good, a good place of healing and just kind of a accountability where they say, you know, you take each step at a time, each moment at a time. And sometimes you think, well, is the year too much? Is 2020 too much? Well, take each month at a time. Is each month too much? Take each week. What about each day, each moment and moment by moment, that's what we are. You know, you think about breathing each time you take a breath, you're literally resetting your death clock because if you don't breathe for two minutes, you're going to die. And I think when you can accept that and just realize that we're here on this earth just to, to grow and progress and find meaning, help others do the best we can, and then go on to the, what, whatever happens after this, you know, you just, you take each moment by moment. And you live your life and all that worrying and the fear. Yeah. You live with it and you work through it and it all works out.
0: Yeah. And actually uh, that that's, that's really, um, Interesting, uh, particularly about how things can work out. Um, so you mentioned that you sort of had it, you started studies maybe a little late, you had a little bit of an interruption and finished a little bit later than people might have otherwise. And, and I've got a question that I wanted to ask you that, I mean, I just building up that context that I often ask people on this podcast, if they're in tech, which is if you were starting out now, like in 2021, with the intention of having a career like the one you've had, would you actually get a, one or more formal university degrees? Before oh, no. starting out? No.
1: Oh, no. So I I have a lot of respect for education, for professors. I've been a professor. I actually was able to be an adjunct professor at BYU teaching undergrads. Picture this, 350 undergrads, you know, teaching them Microsoft Excel and be like, Professor Godfrey, I have a question about my life. What should I do for my major? What should I do for, you know, for this class? Who should I date? You know, all these questions. Like, I'm just a graduate student. Like, hold the phone. And I have full respect for it, but I also think that there is, there's a kind of like how to train your dragon three, so to speak, like a hidden world where here's the, let me go back, uh, there is, this paradigm where we all think that you're supposed to go to school and you're supposed to get your degree and go work for a big company in information systems that would be KPMG or PricewaterhouseCoopers or Accenture or any of these kind of, you know, management consultant auditing type firms. And then you go get your degree and you put your time in and then you finally get a move at the chain and maybe you go get another master's degree or whatnot. And then you have to get a degree to succeed. In some cases, the formal way, yes. I mean, that is true when they look for apps applicants then they want somebody who has that kind of experience and that piece of paper. But what you're doing when you go to school is learning how to learn. You're getting the network and you're basically getting the the confidence to go and do things. You're getting this exposure for this project and this project. I'm going to say something bold. You don't need an education. If you've got hustle, you might need education if you want to work for a big company that has these rigidized processes. But if you want to go make money and take care of your life, you don't need it. Freelance, you just need to need to know how to write or code or design. And you need to have the confidence to pitch and the know how to run a business, which you can get just by getting experience. But I think having that degree is good for a lot of people because they feel that they aren't good enough because, you know, oh, I, I you know, missed one class in my degree. And because of that, then five years went past and it expired. I know people who did that, where they went to school for, you know, four years minus one class and it's a waste, not a waste, but you know, they don't have that piece of paper, but it gives them that confidence. It can make hiring easier. It can make finding a job easier, but you don't have to have it. If you have solid experience, it can help. But yeah, there, there's arguments for both both sides. But yeah, yeah thanks for, very much for me. sharing that. And, yeah. I mean, I'd like to go back and teach at BYU again. Uh, I don't need to have a PhD for that, but I could go get one. I've got a couple of published papers, not to be like, look at me, I'm so fancy. Uh, They're literally just, you know, conference papers and whatnot. But it's, I don't know, it's not where I want to go. I'd rather have the experience, I'd rather build products, inventions, write books, and showcase my skill set that way instead of saying, I went to school and I can take these courses because... I can take courses without going to school and I can have them be more applicable to my life than just a school course that's, you know, three to five days, three to five years
0: out of date. Thanks very much for that really great answer. Um, Just before we move on to the next part of the interview where we talk about your book, um, I wanted to ask you, you mentioned a little bit about how the pandemic has affected uh, your professional life, but I just wanted to get a little, if you wondered if you could give us a little bit of a picture of just the life around you, where you live in Utah. Uh, Did people start wearing masks right away? Did they outside? I mean, did they not start wearing masks at all? Um, uh, oh man! Uh, get, get all the restaurants shut down—that <laughs> kind of thing.
1: This is my official on-microphone sigh. <sighs> Wear a bleepity bleep mask. I mean, yeah, there's all these the conspiracy theories, and there's all these people saying you don't need to, and people saying that you know tuberculosis is just as infective and whatnot, and the flu is just as infective. Yada yada yada. I mean, I think the comfort that it comes from giving. Wearing a mask gives other people comfort and it helps just to be obedient. It helps. It does slow down the spread. There's, you know, you can find science that says masks aren't very effective and you can find science where it says it is effective. A lot of it. And I think that people here, yeah, there's still people who go to parties. There's still people who don't wear masks. From what I see, because I only go to shop, is that most people wear masks. Some of them dangle their nose out from their mask like they shouldn't. Um, Which is, yeah, you shouldn't do that. But no, people generally started ramping up slowly here in the States. And I'd be a little exasperated why some people just don't, just didn't care. And it was really frustrating. Still, it's frustrating. But now more and more people are wearing masks and I can go to the store and, you know, they've got mandatory rules. So it's not a big deal. But yeah, I'm really excited because in Utah, there's a population of about 3.3 million. And we've got about, oh, 500,000 doses so far and people vaccinated. Of course, you know, there's two doses, right? But it's slowly wrapping up. And the more and more we get people vaccinated and the more people who've been infected and who have healed, you get that herd immunity and it's just a lot less stress because... I'll probably get vaccinated in three, four months and it'll be a good thing. But yeah, uh, COVID-19, you also, before I had asked about my work, that's why I took a full time job is because COVID-19, you know, my lead flow wasn't as good. I had some projects and then just things just dried up and I've learned my lesson sort of, but I know more about finding clients and how to reach out and whatnot. But that's why I'm working is because just the work dried up. And now, as soon as I had work and work's been good and got my feet wet, then I start getting more side work, but I'm happy where I'm at. I think I'll stay with money for a good while.
0: Yeah, I've uh, interviewed a lot of lean pub authors are people who've kind of either been independent their whole careers or chose to go independent at some point. There seems to be some connection often between writing writing and self-publishing books and just being someone who naturally gravitates towards, you know, being freelancer on their own. Mm-hmm. And, and particularly at the beginning, you know, one or two people were very concerned about how it was going to affect them over the course of the year. Particularly people who were a big part of their revenue stream was being invited to give talks by companies or doing on-site consulting and things like that. And uh, yeah, so there's there, a lot of people have been negatively affected by that. And, and then you know there are other people who are maybe in other parts of the industry who are like, wow, I've got more work than ever, you know, and it just kind of depends on, on your on your situation. Uh, for example, well, I mean, I, just I'm thinking specifically about someone who worked who works in um, actually in book publishing, yeah. and you know, he's a consultant. And so all of a sudden people are reading more. And so yep. people see it. So it it, just, it can kind of depend, depend where you're in. in.
1: I've got a friend, Spencer Bean. Hi, Spencer, um, who runs a <laughs> puzzle company. He does custom puzzles and oh. his business boomed because people are at home wanting things to do. And so his business actually took up his stitch people business as well. His wife, he and his wife wrote a book on cross stitch patterns, which has just been phenomenal, like super successful. And, you know, I've got my imposter syndrome book. I've sold my freelance college course uh, and made some money that way on the side. But most of my income has either been, you know, early on W2 work, so full-time work or... Uh, basically trading time for money through consulting. So this is my first passive income stream and I I love it. I love waking up and getting a little email in my inbox saying, you know, your imposter syndrome book sold for, you know, $5 or $10 or whatnot. And I just love it. I mean, this sounds crazy. Totally, totally crazy. Right. But I had a chance to take on a Shopify project. This is last week lead came in a referral lead. Uh, Usually those ones convert at a really, really high rate. Like we're talking, 90%, 95% because it comes from somebody who they trust and it was for a $15,000 project. And I'm pretty busy these days with my full-time work, but also because my side hustle, uh, you know, I'm working on that $7,000 project that's due on Monday. I've got another $11,000 project that's due next month and I just didn't have time for it. And so I turned down a $15,000 project and I could have, you know, scheduled things out by a month or something and try to work on it on the side. I just, I want to work on my own stuff. And this sounds so crazy to me now, but I get way more joy out of a, a $5 email or a $10 email that I sold a book than doing another $5,000 or $10,000 client project it's so weird to me like i'm more excited about that little teeny bit I'm more excited about you know starting my blacksmithing hobby which i have a forge ready to be built in my garage and picking up a, a burner tomorrow and those things excite me and so having been a person who has just kind of coasted for a lot of my life you know i've got things done i've had some really good success for me it's coasting right the perfectionist steven says he's coasting um but i want to start having more meaning more purpose more progress more things that give me joy and writing gives me joy building things with my hand and working in the forge and having that propane roar that gives me joy and so it's nice to have these side hustle things because i can you know we're getting new rooms for the kids new bedroom for a room a new bed for a bedroom
0: but yeah I want to have more joy in life. Speaking of writing, uh, moving on to the next part of the interview, you've <laughs> written a book called *Imposter Therapy: How to Overcome am... Imposter Syndrome and Start Living*. It's really—it's got a great cover, for example. I should—I just wanted to mention that. Um, but Thank you. Uh, it's a really well-written book, um, and I wanted to start talking about it by just asking you: How would you go about defining imposter syndrome if someone were just asking you about it over dinner?
1: So. I would define imposter syndrome a little deeper. I think that imposter syndrome actually has two different categories. Some people will think about imposter syndrome as a feeling where that you don't deserve uh, the, sex, the success that you have. So the accomplishments, the awards, the, the adulations, all these sort of the praise that you don't deserve it, that you don't deserve to be there, you don't belong here, that you're a fraud, they're going to find you out, and that's kind of the common dictionary definition that you feel like you don't deserve the. Reward that you have. And I also think that imposter syndrome is, and that's kind of like the, the super successful, the person who's actually achieved things, they feel that way. I believe there's also the newbie, you know, the new, the beginner, that person who just starts the job, the person who just goes to college, the person who's just trying to pick up a new hobby, that person who's just starting something. Those people often will say the word imposter syndrome that, what am I doing? Can I do this? Can I learn this? Am I good enough to learn this, you know, especially with a job like do I, again, do I belong to, do I deserve to be here? Do I belong? Look at that person. They're so smart. That that kind of a new mentality of do I even have the right to have my presence here? And so when I think of imposter syndrome, I think of that both for the the beginner and for the accomplished pro.
0: There's a really interesting story. There are a number of interesting stories in your book, but there's one in particular involving uh, Neil Gaiman and Neil Armstrong that I was wondering <laughs> if you could, if you wouldn't mind sharing with people just to get a sense of, you know, how the type of person that can get imposter syndrome can actually be like profoundly accomplished and yeah, uh, celebrated.
1: So, so there was a story where Neil Gaiman, he's an accomplished author and writer. He was at this gala, this presentation for people who've done amazing things. And he said, sitting at the back thinking like, I'm just a writer. What do I, you know, here's this person is curing cancer and this person is doing genome sequencing. And this person is doing this fantastic math thing or, or whatnot, feeling just this heavy, heavy imposter syndrome. And so he's just in the back, you can just picture a guy to kind of lean back in his chair thinking like, what am I doing here? And he starts chatting with this really nice and kind elderly gentleman who basically felt the same kind of thing. It's like, what am I supposed to be doing here? It turns out that person was Neil Armstrong, the first man to walk on the moon. And Neil Armstrong says like, why am I here? I just went where I was sent. They said to go to the moon, I went to the moon. This person is doing way more amazing things than I have. And so Neil Gaiman basically says, if Neil Armstrong can have imposter syndrome, like, I suppose that's okay for me too. And that's the thing in the book where I've got tons of examples. I actually started writing this book with a developer mindset and then also just one switch to a more general approach for imposter syndrome because I didn't want to single people out. But I find that actors and both developers have both. They have, um, yeah, actors and developers have both written a lot about imposter syndrome. You think about Tom Hanks and Natalie Portman. And you also think of other developers like Scott Hanselman or Brendan Dunn or John Like, There's a whole lot of people who've written about imposter syndrome. And that's the first thing I teach in the book really is that you aren't alone that so often we get in this mental state where we think with these internal fears of I'm alone, no one else feels this way, I feel like this, I'm so fearful, all this, these internal feelings. And if you don't express those, if you don't connect with other people, then you're never going to know how they feel There was a story where in my book, where uh, after I get laid off at that startup and other people were getting laid off too, but I was the first to go because it was first in first out, right? But I'd worked there for a few months and I was talking to a friend there and said, I don't really know what I want to do with my life. And he's like, Steven, join the club. And I thought this guy, Jason had everything figured out. He was smart. He was, you know, the girls liked him. He was just doing well. He was super skillful. And I thought that skill and technical aptitude equaled direction, purpose, you know, uh, meaning. And I was, I was dead wrong. And so like before I talked to him, I thought I I'm the only person. And the more and more I research, most of us feel this way that if you don't have imposter syndrome, great, good for you. But it's those people who either overcome it or they have some pretty good mental, mental health, or, uh, some people are delusional. They don't think they have a problem, but yeah. Most people do. And, what, and is it okay. about,
0: what is it about software development, do you think, that makes imposter syndrome particularly common yeah. amongst those people?
1: So imagine this. You get into a field. You don't know what you're writing. Like, you try to pick up bash Bash programming, right? It's been around for for years, decades. It should be easy to pick up, but then you start forgetting to put the space between the equal sign when declaring a variable, or you try and do a if statement, and it's just different than everything you've seen. But programming is literally failing your way to success. You basically start with something and you break it so badly, (laughs) and you keep breaking it and making mistakes, you make it a little better, a little better, and then finally, eventually, eventually at the end, you've got it working the way you want. And that is so stressful and so heart-wrenching sometimes for somebody, especially who's new, or even if you're experienced, because we've all been there. A misplaced semicolon, some Python, some padding issue where something was off by a certain tab. And I think it's so common in tech because there's all that weight. We're building systems sometimes where people's livelihood depends on it. We're building code where we want not know it's going to work until the very end. You've got to look up things on Google and each, or Stack Overflow. And each time you do, you think, am I a fraud? Am I fake? Like, I should know this stuff already. And well, yeah, you can figure it out. But what's the point of wasting all that time trying to figure out one original solution where you could look on Stack Overflow, find something remotely close to what you need, make sure it's best practice, good syntax, and then go for it. But I think it's, yeah, it's super common in tech, really, really common. And the people who listen to this, they think that they're the only one, or they're the only person who struggles or has to look up on Stack Overflow. You're not alone. <laughs> we all do it.
0: <laughs> and uh, in the book, you, you set out three steps that one can Follow to try and overcome imposter syndrome, which are reach out, reach in, and reach forward. And I was wondering if you wouldn't mind talking about each one briefly, just so we get a sense of what the steps are.
1: Absolutely. So I wouldn't even call these steps, but more of a section. When you have reach, so there's again, like you said, reach, reach in, reach out, reach in, and then reach forward. So when you want to reach out, it's because even though you have an internal problem, the solution really is external. It's connecting with others, getting Finding out that you're not alone and also having a better perception. So there's a analogy that I found where if you're a ship, you know, say you're an old-time ship captain sailing on the on a ship, you know, you've got the sails, the rigging, you're standing on the deck and you're trying to find the new land, and you look out as hard as you can and you still can't see land, but all of a sudden, the crew member up in the crow's nest says, land, ho! And they can see it. You're like, whoa, whoa. You look, you squint your eyes, you get your telescope and you still can't see it. And life and imposter syndrome is just like that. And it's not that there's a problem with the captain's vision or he's not looking hard enough or he's doing things the wrong way. There is a mathematical way of physics, like just with trigonometry and line of sight that the person on a crow's nest can actually see about for an average sailing ship, we're talking 12 miles, you know, what is that in Canadian, right? We're talking 18 <laughs> clicks, but you know, 12 miles away. And it just has to do with the physics. It's his position. And so there's nothing wrong with the captain. There's nothing wrong with what, how he's trying to look. He literally just can't see it from his position. And when you have imposter syndrome, you, you need to connect with others because they can see things you can't. There was a, my wife, this is funny. She had a, an ex, a Microsoft Excel issue. And we were like, no, this, Well, a couple stories with this. One's a Microsoft Excel issue where it was super simple. We just had to concatenate two cells together, change some color, change some headings, just some real simple formatting stuff. And so I just whipped it up. Helped her, took me three or four minutes. And she says, You're you're a wizard. And her, I'm thinking, like, that's nothing. Like, that's Excel. That's that's past stuff. I rarely use Excel anyway, right? It's not even real coding. And or you you go see your grandma and she says the internet doesn't work. So you go and you unplug it and it works once you plug it back in, right? And then she thinks you're a hero and you're the Greek god of tech, you know, techonesis or something that she calls (laughs) you. And to you, you're like, I unplugged a router. And it just depends on your perception, you know? So that's what you have to ask people, how am I doing? Do you feel this way? Uh, I feel this way, have you ever ever felt this way? I feel alone, I feel scared. And if you can find someone that you can trust and connect to, they're gonna help put you straight and say, no, you're actually a really good person. I remember feeling fearful when I joined uh, a company and one of the coworkers like, I'm so glad you joined. You've done this and this and this, you were absolutely the right hire. And inside I'm thinking like, are you sure? You know, thinking that there's always somebody better, right? A better hire, a better candidate and you've got to connect and that's where you can actually have you if you can't even connect with friends you can also read about it you know they say have a coach or a mentor in life right well you can also have virtual mentors where you're reading up you know you're reading people's stories they have written Because when you read up on Neil uh, Gaiman meeting Neil Armstrong, right, at a gala, or you read up on Brendan Dunn talking about his imposter syndrome, I've got my book. I think list-wise, let me find it here. You know, you've got John Somers, Natalie Portman. Let's go through a list real quick. People who have actually written actors, so Tom Hanks. Emma Watson, you know, she says when she gets recognition, she feels incredibly uncomfortable. Tom Hanks saying, when are they going to discover that I am in fact a fraud and take everything away? Uh, Robert Downey Jr. was really fearful about being uh, Charlie Chaplin. And you've got like Daniel Radcliffe saying that, am I doing the right thing? Is this what I'm meant to be doing? Uh, Don Cheadle saying, all I can see is everything I'm doing wrong. That is a sham and a fraud. And Sigourney Weaver, this is an awesome one, the last actor. Have I ever doubted myself? Have I ever not? I feel self-doubt whether I'm doing something hard or easy. And that's the actors, just a snippet of people who have suffered through imposter syndrome. And I've got a whole list of developers, people who have worked work for GitHub, Microsoft, Braintree. You know, I've read my story in there as well about imposter syndrome. And yeah, you've got to be able to reach out and connect because then you can find out that you're not alone and you get that right perspective of your life so that's the first section is reach yeah
0: reach. Yeah, out. And, and the second section is reaching in which is about uh overcoming fear and finding peace and i was wondering if we could talk a little bit about about how people can how you recommend people go about trying to find that
1: so with the next section of reaching in once you've reached out and you have that instant win that low-hanging fruit of finding out oh i talked to so-and-so i'm not a fraud and, oh, they felt the same way I do. Then you can reach in and deal with your internal emotions. So this is where you actually want to dig in deep and you will find ways to overcome fear. Because here's the thing with fear. Fear is like this smoke screen, this little you know nebulous cloud, this, this ether that it looks really scary. But once you get close to it, it still doesn't hurt you you inspect it you look at it it doesn't hurt you and you can become an observer there's a i didn't talk about this in the book but there's a way of picturing you know your fears inside you and then you know the there's people the Buddhists might call it transcendence where you to transcend other people would say it's like an observer state where you want to look and see and view your fears as the observer and to do this you know there's tools such as breath control uh, the Navy SEALs—they'll use something called box breathing. And you know, a couple things first. When you breathe, you want to put your hand on your your belly. You're make sure you're using your diaphragm to breathe, and your belly should be going in and out. And then as you do it, you can just be mindful of that. And just when you're breathing in, breathing out, and then you can do box breathing. And this is really helpful when you've got a meeting coming up or a podcast that you're being, you know, uh, you're being on or being interviewed. You can breathe before and box breathing is simply this. You breathe in for, say, four seconds. You hold for four seconds. You breathe out for four seconds, and then you hold for four seconds. And yeah, you definitely hold the emptiness at the end because it helps you become more comfortable with discomfort. And that's what fear is. And through breath control, just doing that again and again and again. And, you know, if you're in a stressful situation, you can drop the hold. So if you're in a fight or if you're trying to speak to somebody, you can just breathe in one, two, three, four, out, two, three three, four, in, two, three, four, out, two, three, four. And you can slow that down and stretch it out. I've been able to breathe eight seconds on each side, 10 seconds, so it's 10 seconds in, 10 seconds hold, 10 seconds out, 10 seconds hold, and keep going. And it's it really helps. It's how the Navy SEALs uh, get ready for combat, how they recover from combat, how they can actually shoot between heartbeats and get their heart rate down like 60 beats per, per minute. And that's the first part of, uh, of reaching in is breath control. Then you've got things such as meditation and mindfulness. I mean, you can, I use Calm calm.com and about bought the lifetime app. and I'm, I don't get any kickback or anything for this. I just love Tamara I love it. And her, her meditations. And it's
0: I, a, I, it's interesting. Sorry to interrupt, but you reminded me of a really great story. I heard of, um, uh, Bill Hader, the comedian. Um, he was probably on Seth Meyers or something like that. And he was talking about how he's just got terrible, basically stage fright and fear and performance anxiety. And then they joked, of course, so you took the hardest job in, <laughs> in television, which is Saturday night live. But anyway, um, Uh, But he said, if I recall correctly, whenever the anxiety comes or the fear, he imagines that this cute little monster has started sitting, like appeared sitting on his shoulder. And he's like... Oh, you again, (laughs) you can't hurt me, but there you are. And you're not going away. uh, And he just uses this technique to kind of get through it.
1: Yeah. And whatever technique you want to, you want to use for me, I'll I'll picture a box. I'll picture this transparent, you know, plexiglass box and I'll put my, my interferes for me. It's this, this sounds so crazy and weird, but it's like this snake kind of object where it's got this kind of murky, dark black mass cloud and I'll picture it going to the box and and just so I can just observe it and be be observer of my fears. And Will Smith says, everything that you want is on the other side of fear. I believe he's quoting Jack Canfield on that one. But having fear in life, fear is okay. It's okay to be scared. It's your natural brain saying, oh, no, oh, no, I'm scared. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm in danger. But just because you're in danger. doesn't mean you have to be scared. There's a, you know, that horrible movie after earth with Will Smith. I love Will Smith, by the way, he's great. You know, he talks about how don't, don't misunderstand about how fear is real. Uh, you know, danger is real, but fear is a choice. And I think in life, we come across so much fear, fear about asking a, you know, for my case, a girl out on a date, Fear about buying a house, fear about taking a new job, Fear about am I doing this right? Fear about will I keep my job during the pandemic? Fear about find, you know all these sort of things my kid I mean I raising my kids right? And that's just your brain doing what your brain's supposed to do is trying to pick out threats and issues and say am I okay, am I safe? am I safe? And so you can just sit with your fear. Just sit, sit with it. And be okay, with because as you as you investigate it, and this is where, you know, writing things down with a pen and paper is really helpful. Because when you say, well, why am I scared? You know, oh, I'm so scared about losing my job. Why? Because I don't have a lot of savings. Why? Because I don't know how to save. Why? Because, you know, nobody taught me. Why? Because I never asked. You know, you can go down to the root of the cause and yeah, find the source. There's always a solution. There's always a solution. And the solution with fear is to get close to fear. Embrace it, hug it, look at it, inspect it, get deep and find out why are you scared? And this is a scary thing, um, but it's a better way because here's a secret that a lot of people don't know about fear. You know what a flywheel is, right? You see those in, you know, turbines or whatnot. A flywheel is this energy storage device and it's always rotating. And I believe that, you know, inside us, we have this, these feelings that keep coming up. And so, yeah, yeah. I guess let's let's be honest. Here's the the story of my upbringing or the story where I was dating a girl for a year and I was engaged for a year. And then on our wedding day at the, at the Salt Lake Temple, I mean, here, here's the secret process of how things work when you're a Latter-day Saint, right? How they get married in the temple is you show up in your normal church clothes, you go down, you dress in white, and then you go into a waiting room. I'm not gonna share any secrets or anything, but you go hand in hand and you walk up to a sealing room where, you know, 50 seats, 40 seats, and your family's there from both sides of the family. And then you get sealed for time and an eternity. Is that That's the belief in the LDS Church. But here I am, uh, the girl shows up and we go through the front desk and shore recommends we get you know go to get dressed and i'm sitting there waiting i'm waiting in the waiting room and i see these couples come in shining beaming they hold hands they look at each other all you know googly eyed and whatnot and then another couple goes another couple goes another couple goes another one goes and i finally say hey can you find out what's going on and they call and say yeah you know Godfrey, wedding number nineteen, yeah. Can you go see President Baxter in the office? And there's my bride to be. I go upstairs, take off the you know the white clothes and simple simple clothing, and she's she's bawling, she's crying, and that is my getting dumped at the altar story. And it turned out that you know we all had our own issues. There was a lot of baggage and whatnot. She wasn't as honest as she could be. I should have been more courageous than I was. So there's definitely fault on both sides. But I, and that rocked me to my core. And so that means failing school for a few semesters, going back to Fort Murray, making a lot of money, doing trucking and going back to school. And so I think a lot of us, we need self-compassion because life will, life will just kick you in, in the groin and kick you and kick you and beat you down if you let it. Life is beautiful and amazing. And I'm so grateful to be alive, but we all have hard things that we go through. Most of them we cause ourselves.
0: <laughs> uh, thanks yeah. very much for sharing that um, uh, that reminds me of I think it's in your book or it may have been somewhere else where I read you talking about one technique you can use for analyzing your fear is thinking about what's the worst case yep. scenario well, and I, I, I guess the very unfortunately in that particular circumstance that was that was pretty much the worst thing you could imagine happening. Well, that's the thing. I
1: mean, looking back, this is one of the best things that could happen to me, but when it happened, it was really hard. And so that's why I talk about the flywheel and bringing things up because your emotions, your past are going to keep coming up. Your fears are going to keep coming up. They're going to go around. They might, you know, three months, six months a year, but they're always going to come. And so unless you deal with your fears, unless you find ways to actually approach your fears and sit with it and analyze it and asking like, why am I scared of this? Again, what is the worst going to happen? you know, but digging into those fears, you're always going to have that come up. And this isn't a threat or anything. It's just the way life is and the way that we're built. So, but yeah, with fear, looking from the point of view of what's the worst that can happen? Why do I feel this way? Just, just get deep, get close with your fears. And if you do that, you'll find that you're, there's nothing to really be scared of because you can break it down and then you can find out why are you really scared? What's the root cause? And then you can solve it. And
0: the final section is reach forward. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that.
1: Yep. So reaching forward is, in my belief, I don't think that we're sent here in this life to just survive and get through. I think that we need to thrive. There's a, a philosophy in the ancient Stoics. So the Stoics, they were, you know, in ancient Greece, you know, Marcus Aurelius. Uh, Seneca, Epictetus, and they believe that you should have uh, eudaimonia, which is a Greek word that literally means, you know, there's a lot of, you know, living well or not. I think the best translation is human flourishing. So you think about a garden, right? You know, the snow patrol, right? A, gar- a garden that's bursting into life where you've got vines and overflow and everything's growing in abundance of life. And too many of us are just surviving. We're just getting through. We're just trying to make it through life, and that's okay. But I think the goal is to thrive, is to progress, and really to flourish in life. And so I go through two frameworks. One for the the again the beginner and imposter syndrome who feels they they can't learn anything, you know, I'm not good enough to be here. And that's a framework of learning anything you want to learn, leveraging the 10,000 hour rule, you know, uh, science and the new expertise and, you know, using grit and basically uh, dedicated practice and learning anything you want. And the second part is stoicism, where we do real life applications of how stoicism can work. If you feel like a fraud, you know, there's, there's quotes where like Epictetus will say that, you know, you would be, let me see if I can find it here, but you would be offended if somebody gave your stuff away to anybody who's walking by yet, you know, you so easily will give your mind away and your thoughts away and have you no shame on that. Or how Marcus Realis will talk about how, you know, the, even. And the, the ant and the bee and the miser, you know, they do what their nature demands. your human nature, right? And so as you lay there in bed thinking, oh, this is nice. Were you born to feel nice? Were you born to lay there in your warm sheets? This is me paraphrasing, of course, but how we need to get up and do what our nature demands. And so I basically take imposter syndrome and take this thousands and thousands year old framework of stoicism. And it still applies and it still works because stoicism is all about living a life of courage, of managing emotions you think of a stoic well uh, like spock in star trek the people who created that character i mean spock's awesome right live long and prosper he's great but his character was taken erroneously from what people thought stoics were where you don't have emotion it's fine to have emotions it's fine to have fear it's fine to feel scared but you need to manage that fear you need to be in control of that fear and so If you think you can't control fear, well, think about the soldiers who stand on the front line and see the whites of the enemy eyes and they still hold firm. You think about the CEO who has to make payroll and he still makes it or puts his house on the line and he's still there. You think about fear, you think about a mother going to give childbirth because this day and age is still dangerous and how you can
0: still be present, and you can still stand strong, even though you're scared. One thing that nature demands is that all things must come to an end. Uh, and so I think it's probably good for us now to move on to the last part of the interview, where we talk about uh, your process as an author writing the book. Um, I guess my first question there would be, why did you choose Lean Pub as a platform to publish your book?
1: Well, I didn't choose Lean Pub as a platform to publish my book, but uh. it was expediency. So I had written my book originally in google drive and google sheets actually and it was pretty good i wanted to find a publisher because i not a publisher an editor because i wanted to have a better just a better reader experience i'd gone through and done four different like four drafts of just revising revising cleaning things up and it was all in google and google sheets and i said hey to a publisher how do you want this it's like well we actually do microsoft word which there's this whole in writing microsoft word is king which i don't understand understand why, yes, Microsoft is fine, but just the whole process of formatting is such a beast and it's a hassle and trying to get different versions. It was just, it wasn't, it wasn't enjoyable. And so I took my Google sheets, exported it as a Microsoft Word, sent it to my publisher. She turned on track changes, made her changes, and I accepted, you know, all of them. But I, I found that after that, you know, I could export Microsoft Word as a PDF, but it wasn't, what a Mobi, what about You know, what about EPUB? What about PDF? What about web versions? Any of those? And so I found LeanPub, like, okay. Let's, let, let's redo this. So once I got the, the edited book back, I took every single word, <laughs> copy, paste, manual formatting, typesetting, everything in, Lean, in LeanPub. And it was a really good experience. And I love that I can actually export, you know, make a change and export different versions and whatnot. And I sold, posted the book on Smashwords, which it really hasn't sold well at all on Smashwords. I, I don't know what authors get, um, if they advertise and sell better there. But our, but I have had really good experience with selling through LeanPub. And so most of my sales come through word of mouth, posting, uh, friends, uh, mentoring people on freelancing. People find out that I wrote a book, they want to buy it. And so it's been, I, I, you know, I don't know, do we talk about numbers? or? But you first want the writing process, right? So that, that was really it. Just yeah putting yeah. things in leanpub and so the next book I write will be written just in leanpub and I want to I don't know how to find an editor who can work with git and work with leanpub but I'm sure I can figure somebody you know find somebody who knows english and like an english major
0: who knows git thanks very much for sharing all those details that's gold to people who are getting started or who've sort of running into roadblocks to hear you know the experiences that other people had and how they made it through i would say in particular like whenever i have to turn on microsoft word it makes me cry (laughs) uh it is such a terrible we don't normally complain about other people's products here and who am i to complain about microsoft word right but it has a place right it's it's terrible for writing and it's really unfortunate for the writing world that microsoft word is is still the default thing i mean i wrote i wrote a doctoral thesis it was it had no images in it it was only about i don't know 300 or 400 pages long and when i Got wanted to take it to the printer, I had to, sp- like, even when I was writing it, I had to split it into, like, eight different files huh. be- because it couldn't handle anything more than, like, 50 pages. Otherwise, huh. you just got the spinner all the time and stuff like that. Like it's- And so what I mean is, like, not just visually or, or with, all- like, all kinds of other features that basically using Microsoft Word to, like, write an ordinary book like the, to write the manuscript for an ordinary book is like getting a, like a fighter jet to go to the corner store. Like <laughs> when you're, when you're writing a normal book, it's got like chapter headings and then paragraphs <laughs> yep, yep. And, and a table of contents and maybe an index, um, you know, and to use something with like mail merge in it, you know, to do th- anyway. Yeah. It's, it's uh, it's anyway, that's, that's my, bleepity bleep Microsoft Word rant. Um, well, <laughs> that's why I love LeanPub
1: because it puts the the image in at the start of the, and we'll just say for the PDF case, right? Because, you know, um, EPUB, I think EPUB has it, but, you know, Moby, you upload your own image, but it comes with the front matter. It comes with the copyrights. It comes with table content generation. And so, writing a book in Markdown, I mean, Markdown's super, super simple to pick up, even for a non-coder. And so, I would suggest writing your next book in Markdown in LeanPub because I You know, even Smashwords, they all recommend that Microsoft Word is the way to go. And they only have it where if you write in Word, then you can have the different formats to export. Where, I mean, I've never, is it Scrivener? Is it, how would you say that? Scrivener. Scrivener, that's the one. Scrivener, and there's other ones that you can use for writing. But yeah, Leanpub's really, really good. For yeah. publishing. Yeah, I'm really
0: happy with it. it. It's interesting, actually, just to go to talk a little bit about that we've, I, we, I, I actually interviewed the founder and CEO of Smashwords on the podcast one. So I just want to say that much, much love to, to oh. Smashwords, uh, but, and I know, I know you weren't casting versions either, nope. but um, uh, it, so I go on complaining about Microsoft Word to a lot of people, like to people like you and me, maybe, you know, we hear about, oh, a markup syntax called markdown and we're like, oh yeah, let's, let's check it out. A lot of people, they hear all those words and they're like, what the hell are you yep, talking yep. about? I don't want to learn anything. I know how to. It's, yeah, sure, it's clunky, but I know how to use Microsoft Word, and I don't want to become a programmer, and I don't want to do all that. And And that's the thing. People in that world, you know, using Microsoft Word is just like, even though, from like my perspective you're actually causing yourself a lot of pain by not just learning this other thing that'll take you 10 minutes to learn now. But I understand it completely psychologically that like, you're just like, that's not me. That's not the kind of thing I do. Just give me Word. I know how it works.
1: And that's okay if they want to do that. I mean, Microsoft Word, it has its place. It has, it does really well in academia and the publishing world. I mean, that's what a lot of people use. And so great, if that's what you're comfortable with, go for it. I just want people, people to be more aware that there is a better way and I don't think Microsoft is the future. I mean, and I'm not going to rant on Microsoft. I think that every nation that has been, you know, the sun never set on the British empire and how great, you know, the United States arguably has been power, power wise in the world. And there was Spain before England. And then you had, you know, all these countries who have just, you know, the Vikings. Right. And I just think Microsoft will have its day. We're eventually able to kind of go away. I mean, they don't, in my opinion, build as good as products. And so not, to rant. I just want people to know that there's a better way of doing it. If you can spend five minutes, 10 minutes learning markdown, just literally you want to do a header. You put a pound sign and a space for header one, you know, uh, two, you know, second level header, two pound signs in the space. You want a, an unordered list, you know, bullet points, you put a, a star or a dash in the space. I mean, it, it's really super easy and it's going to save you all this, you know, five minutes, 10 minutes you might t- even take to write in Markdown. It's going to save you hours of formatting, if not, you know, hours or days of tweaking and changing things because I just make a tweak in LeanPub and then I re-export a new version and then that's it. I can upload that to AWS. I can, or sorry, Amazon. You can tell I work in tech when I think Amazon is AWS and not Amazon.com. But um, yeah, LeanPub is uh, i think a forward future uh, way of writing and i hope people find a better way to write
0: and regarding sales um so it sounds like you're doing uh, something that we uh, typically recommend that authors do which is try out a bunch of different platforms um you know just to be clear about that if you you can use lean to write your book and produce the the ebook, the ebook formats, but you don't actually need to publish it on lean That's not like a requirement that we have yep. or anything like that. Uh, and so you've been, you've been doing different platforms.
1: Yeah. So I basically wrote that book in Microsoft word, exported it as a PDF. <laughs> and then I put it in through the Kindle Create and to put that on as Amazon. I really need to go through and take the latest version because I've tweaked the the typesetting and the formatting on Amazon, but uh, you know how Amazon works. If you sell a book on there, you'll be in like the latest releases. And then unless you market specifically to Amazon, you just kind of, drop off the face of the planet because there's so many ebooks. And so my lean pump's done pretty well. I mean, I'm we can talk numbers. I think I've sold a hundred and sixty dollars in royalties, which isn't huge, but I mean for me who for a book that's been released as of Oh, I'd say the start of this year, January 1st, through just kind of passive word amount. I'm, I'm happy with that. I mean, I haven't done any marketing funnels. I haven't done any, you know, launches with an email list or anything like that. And so it's just this small little passive thing where, you know, every other, every third morning, they get a little email saying, I got a book sold for nine bucks or five bucks. And it's just something where I can say, I did it. I wrote it. I'm going to write more. And that's the thing writing a book. I mean, you write one book and then you might get some exposure from that. But you write two books, you get way more exposure. You write three, you get more exposure, more sales. And when they you know, buy book three, they think, that's pretty good. I want to buy book one and two. And that's just how readers work. And so this first book is literally a foot in the door of my future of, of writing on the side. And it gives me meaning and joy. And so I can make a little bit of money. I'm happy with that.
0: Yeah, I don't know if you've done any reading in the self-publishing kind of blogger sphere, but you've you've just exactly described the process that the most sophisticated self-publishing authors use and recommend to people, which is like remember that your first book is your first book, um, yep. and uh, you know it will still be there when you've finished your third or fourth. Yep. Um, and in, particularly with, with genre fiction, um, people often make their first book completely free. Um, and then there's all kinds of things you can do with, with special offers and stuff like that, On particularly on Amazon to get yourself boosted up the lists and things like that. And so what was Eric Reese's Low My Five Readers or something like that famous, <laughs> famous, famous post? Uh, you know, you've got to start somewhere and keeping in mind that you're at the beginning of a journey and where you're going to be 10 years later. is, is
1: There really is a quote, or basically, I wouldn't quote anybody, but trust the process, you know, trust the process that if you keep writing, you keep producing, you keep turning things out, then eventually you'll find your success, whatever that means. But a lot of us they think, "Oh, I wrote a book. I need to make money out this." I mean, that's why with writers, yes, there's always those rare people who can self-publish or they get this amazing book deal. But those people are rare. And for most of us, it's those people who've written three or four or five or six books. I know people who one girl, I won't share names, but you know, she makes a hundred thousand a year doing, you know, doing romance books. A couple of her friends were talking where they make a you know a couple hundred if not a you know close to a million in sci-fi books. Brandon Sanderson, who I've met and shook hands and talked to, he's awesome. he gave me a, a bit of advice saying keep writing. like literally that was it. so hard to sit behind him in a seminar, by the way, where he's just right in front of me and just thinking, that's Brandon Sanderson. I've read all his books. He's amazing. I'm a starting, like I'm a new a new writer. I have imposter syndrome. Like really hard to focus on the seminar when you're right behind Brandon Sanderson. But um yeah, just trust the process. Trust that it's gonna work out. Trust that if you keep working, you keep writing, you get to your three or five or six drafts, whatever it takes for that particular book. You send it off to an editor you know, if you need to, you pay for it, you get done and you publish and then you write the next book and then you publish and then you write the next book. And eventually you get to a point where people are reading your stuff. You're finding out that they like your stuff. And then you can start really promoting your work and finding joy and meaning through helping people and getting your work up. So I don't even want to really set up funnels for my imposter syndrome book yet, because I'd rather write because there's, it's just that that, uh, compound effect by having more books. I always wonder if it, is it really worth it to push my imposter syndrome a book when why not spend my, my time writing two
0: or three or four more books and then start to push the marketing and just trust that it'll all work out. The last question I always like to ask in the podcast, if the guest is a lean pub author is, um, if there was one thing we could fix for you that really bugs you, or if there was one feature we could, create for you? Uh, can you think of anything you would ask us to do?
1: Oh, I already know. As soon as okay. you said this question, like, oh, <laughs> my freaking goodness, I want you to fix this. <laughs> so if you make one little mistake with your, uh, with the footnotes, if you have one little spacing off, so say in Markdown, your footnotes are a pain in any any system, right? But you know, Markdown, you've got the square bracket with the caret sign in front, then your number, and then your colon, and then you have to have a space. If you don't have that space there, it doesn't work, and then it just shows up as this this kind of gibberish on your on your page. That would take a, a look into that. Maybe the highlighting when doing your typesetting, trying to say this is an error. I'd say error highlighting is a better thing to have because that one there's gotchas. Like I need to have processes with writing a book. I need to you know search for a double star or a double pound sign or something because I've missed a space. Yeah. But besides that, it's pretty slick.
0: Yeah. No. Thanks very much for that. Um. We've we. We've had uh, people ask for, I mean, better error reporting. And actually, error highlighting is a really—I have not heard—I've not heard that idea before. That's a really interesting idea, and yeah, I'll, I'll note that for the team. Um, working on error reporting is kind of like a medium term thing that we are, we're going to be taking very seriously because for example, like, yeah, if you, you know, we're extolling the virtues of writing in Markdown, right. But like, you know, if, if you, there are things like where if like, if you're trying to insert an image and you type Mm -hmm. the wrong file name or something like that, then when you create a preview, you'll just get a little exclamation point triangle going, there's no image here. And, you know, probably the best, the best, um, one of the best things we could do in that is actually have like, when you create a preview or publish a version have a little error log, which will hopefully be empty all the time or something like that. But, you know, actually show the file and the line mm-hmm. where the issue is would really help people a lot. So yeah, thanks very much for that suggestion. That's that's along the lines of something that authors have asked for before and that we know is very important. And yeah, error highlighting in particular is a really good, really good idea.
1: But I'll be honest, the writing process on Pup is super slick. I wish that there was a way to have the distraction-free mode either turn that on or off because when writing, you want distraction- free, right, and going through, but when actually going back and forth, pasting, copy, paste, copy, paste, if you, you click in, then it has a little blur on the side where it gets rid of the sidebar. It'd It's nice to have the interface where it doesn't hide and show automatically, where you can choose to hide or show it, or have at least an option saying, I want to turn it off, turn it on, because when doing typesetting, it's such a pain to go back and forth. But no, I love LeanPub, I really do. I mean, without getting paid for it, I think it's a great writing, a really great writing process. And I think most authors should use something like LeanPub. I think that Markdown has its uh, small limitation like, you know, tables, right? Really easy to create a table in Microsoft Word. Markdown, I would suggest that writers, when they do it, use a table generator, like outside Lean Pub and just do a markdown table generator, because trying to write them by hand and get the right, you know, pipes and the right hyphens and everything, that's just a pain. Use a free table generator and then paste the,
0: the text in But no, Markdown is the future, I think. Well, uh, thanks very much for your suggestions and uh, for a really great interview and for uh, using LeanPub as a platform to write and publish your book. Uh, And uh, yeah, thanks very much. All right. Thanks, Lynn. Thanks a lot. And as always, thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of the Front Matter podcast. If you like what you heard, please rate and review it wherever you found it. And if you'd like to be a LeanPub author yourself, please check out our website at LeanPub.com. Thanks.